Escape Pod. Episode 212. Today's story. Skin Horse Goes to Mars. By Jay Lake. Welcome to Escape Pod. I'm Alistair, and this week's story comes to us from one of my favourite authors, Jay Lake. Jay's pathological interest in all and sundry takes in everything from American photo history to green technology and politics, the outer edges of astronomical theory, and maps of some of the most unlikely and, occasionally, fictional places on Earth. His work has appeared in numerous locations, most recently alongside John Scalzi, Elizabeth Baer, Tobias Bakel, and Carl Schroeder in the superb Metropolis anthology, and also in his most recent novel, Green, which is out now from Tor. This story was originally published in Postscripts, whereas last week's story, Cathago Delenda Est, by Genevieve Valentine, was published in Federations, available now from Prime Books. It shares the anthology with some heady company, including work by Lois McMaster Bajot, Harry Turtledove, Kay Tempest Bradford, Alistair Reynolds, Alan Dean Foster, Alan Steele, and many more. It's a fantastic and fantastically diverse anthology, and if you don't have it, pick it up. It's well worth it. Before that, though, strap in and prepare to climb the gravity well, because it's story time. Skin Horse Goes to Mars by Jay Lake When I met Skin Horse, my first thought was old, which was weird. Nobody gets old these days. We all die young, some of us after living a long time, if we're lucky. He was in Piet's number 7, a bar-cum-caravansary in an illegal orbit trailing far enough behind Vesta to be ignorable. Piets had been instantiated in an old volatile's bladder that had done the Jovian run a few too many times before falling into the surplus circuit. You could store entire cities in Piet's cubage, which made for a somewhat attenuated bar experience. Plus, the place had one of those gravity cans. Yes, those gravity cans. Which meant your drink stayed stuck down long as you were near a Higgs carpet. So there I was, annoying myself with three perfectly disrespectful rock jocks, each of us out to fleece the others, when this cadaver starts to stand over me. We're all forever young or forever dead, but this Armstrong looked like he'd shaved about half a cent too deep across his whole body and then restored his dermis with spray-on thermal insulation. I mean, what the hell, everybody's water is their own, but air ain't free in this world, and looks do count when settling the bills. I'm hunting for rabbit, the cadaver said to our little foursome. There was something odd in the way his eyes didn't quite track, like he was being told where to look without actually seeing. I know where there's some pussy, said one of the rock jocks, anomaly female gender blend with a high G muscle package and optimized pheromones. Take a left out of the airlock and unzip it. Obligatory laughter from her fellow dust jumpers. Yeah, I said into the trailing silence. I'm rabbit. Why not cop to it? One of Piet's tray warmers would finger me for a five or a couple of slivers of something shiny out of a sample bag. Suck vacuum, Rab, said another rock jock. I'm down over two hundred and you're holding air chits I need back. That was enough for me. Sorry, business calls. 
I laid out my cards and swept my winnings. The gender blend had most of the whiners 200, but I was a bit ahead of Lady Chance myself, as it happened. No big wins this day, I didn't think, which made it a suitable time to fold and go, before the tough boys got too drunk to be good company. I tossed the whiner a couple of bonus oxy-leader tags and stepped out of their space. There was some grumbling behind me as the cadaver wandered down the Higgs carpet until he found an unoccupied lobe of the bar more to his liking. He wound up among a scattering of broom-saddle chairs, most of them chopped from that old Lunatex series of low-duty cycle tenders that had the bad habit of cooking off the fuel cells under full isolation. Cute touch, that. Every jock wanted reminding of another way to bite vacuum. I didn't need this corpse. I was just happy to be away from my latest dance partners. They were boring. But here I was. I might as well play this hand. What the hell happened to you? Life. He said it like he'd heard the question a few thousand times before. Weird thing was, even with that gene bomb face, his voice was very ordinary. Just like any tall guy had spent too many years with an air tube in his mouth, would sound. He continued in that ordinary voice. Eden Rabbit Sims. That was a startling shock to me. My full name isn't exactly a state secret, but it ain't widely known either. Born SY-108 at Old Clavius. Served with the 4th Orbital Assault Dragoons in the Second Rights War. Third War, too, I whispered. Good old 4th. F-O-A-D, FODE, the fuck-off-and-die brigade. We don't even live on in the history books. Not us. Only in memory. Deep in my cortex, dormant subroutines spun up. Bucky wires began storing tension inside my reinforced long muscles. Shank you and the tank you rode in on, dead man. I don't talk that talk no more. Fingers shivering with induced strength, I put my hand up to ward off my nightmares as I walked away. His voice followed me. I need to go to Mars, rabbit. Mars. That stopped me. Nobody went to Mars. Not anymore. Not since Fode pulled out. H-Sap only ever had three planets, really. The rest are useful, even interesting, but Venus, Earth, and Mars were the magic rock balls. Earth we killed one slice at a time, screwing up the carbon balance and warming the oceans and sucking out the fluorosphere in the name of property rights. Only good side to that debacle was enough H-Sap Gattaca in high orbit and beyond when the fan spray turned a deep and permanent brown down the gravity well. No problem, said the big boys. We got money, we got tech, we'll all be young and beautiful and fly on gossamer wings. So off goes the smart crowd to terraform Venus. Little problem with sulfides, little problem with temperature, but cheaper than restarting Earth's smoke and ruin, especially after what happened to the atmosphere. But they had a little problem with genetics, too. Venus is kind of interesting these days, if you're into a 12,000-kilometer ball of cancer. Last probe said the planet's skin was approaching 2,000 meters deep. Nasty thing it is, too. Probably smarter than the entire human race put together. But that monster stays home and broods. Oops, said the big boys. We'll take real nice care of the Martian Republic. Good plan, until the rights wars broke out. Until Fode got a set of marching orders and some exotic weaponry to dick around with. Until some of us fucking dove from orbit, surfing on little clamshells the size and shape of God's fingernails, being reprogrammed on the way down by fucking conditioning agents in the air supplies, so that we landed so far the wrong side of freaked, we were a whole new wave of normal, armed for aerocide. Which we committed with a side order of horror. 
So now HSAP is dying. Slow. Over generations. But there's no place to park a reference genome. No pool deep enough to stabilize what even the best shielded patch of space does to our forever young and beautiful genes. Those plastic, elastic genes. Take a planet with a biosphere to make a species work. All in all, I was damn glad to be a rabbit these days. Until skin face rolled into my hot zone. Vesta's as good as it gets, world-wise, until somebody comes up real smart with one of those Jovian moons. Me? I've killed enough planets, thank you. So I said, nobody goes to Mars. I do. We argued a while, in that special way that only people with nothing but contempt for each other can. I threatened to pull his pelvis out through his jawbone. It's messy, but has been done. I told him I would spit plague. I offered to re-educate his entire family tree from the base pairs up. He just acted big and stubborn and not scared. It was the not scared that finally made an impression on me. Here was a guy who knew what Fode was, what we had done, and had enough sense of purpose not to let that bother him. For Gagarin's sake, not even my lovers knew I was Fode, let alone my best enemies. All right, I finally said. You won't listen to reason, so I'll listen to unreason. What could possibly make you want to go to Mars? I'm Skin Horse. Now there was a name. I just kept a glare focused on him, which also conveniently served as a fire control lock-on for my combat mods. He waited a moment longer, apparently to see if the handle meant anything to me. If it wasn't Fode or didn't owe me money, I didn't care. I wrote the gene code that swallowed Venus, he said. Damnation in vacuum. Well, it just slipped out of me. That's my dermis down there in that sulfur rain. The planet is my clone. No wonder he wasn't impressed with me being foed. I shared my load of ahistorical planet-killing responsibility with a couple of dozen war planners and high echelon types, a few teams of research boffins, eleven hundred of my fellow drop troopies, the vast majority of them deceased, as it happened. This dude owned 33 and a third percent of our collective planet-killing racial guilt, all his own personal self. I mean, who would lie about something like that? That explains a lot, I finally said, except one little tiny detail. I paused, took a deep breath, clenched my shivering muscles so tight I felt pain in my bones. Why the fuck do you want to go to Mars, Venus boy? To heal Venus. Okay. He was crazy. Bug-humping, vacuum-frosted, brain-lesion crazy. On the other hand, so was I. And with a pitch like that, I'd follow Skin Horse anywhere. Even the bloody red pits of Mars, so help me Gagarin. Mars isn't hard to get to. There's a few trillion gigawatt seconds of firepower dedicated to keeping anything from getting back off Mars. But as long as you don't take something with relaunch capability down the gravity well with you, you're welcome to die in your own way. Every now and then, someone with more ambition than sense shoots an armored probe down to the surface. Usually someone else just shuts off the telemetry after a day or two and puts the researchers out to pasture with mind locks and permanent health care endowments. Though history is silent on the matter, I was pretty sure I was the last person ever dusted off that hellhole, just at the end of the oh-so-brief Third Reich's War, and now I was taking Skin Horse back. The problem is leaving again. I thought about that statement for a little while, assuming we survive in the first place. I shall entrust that portion of our efforts to you, Rabbit. Ah, 
I suppose that I was the closest thing to a Martian survival expert. A living one, at any rate. What do you need to haul back up? Goods? Equipment? I was thinking of tonnage and cubage. There were ways and ways to climb a gravity well, but mass rules all. Little clump of Gattaca. Skinhorse held up a hand, thumb and forefinger pinched together to indicate an infinitesimal amount. That stopped me all over again. Ain't no genes left on Mars. Not that you or I would want. Furthermore, ain't nothing down there you can't re-engineer up here for a hell of a lot less money and trouble. Especially less trouble. Not true. He smiled. For the first time in our brief acquaintance, I immediately wished he hadn't. Whatever had happened to his skin had happened to his gums and teeth. Only worse. But that is my problem. I drive, you shop. Precisely. Surely the fourth orbital's finest can manage a trip to Mars, even in these late days. Surely, I muttered. At least there was no point in bringing body bags. If we didn't come back whole and safe, we weren't coming back at all. It took a few weeks to make the preparations. Light-speed comm lag was always a factor. I needed information from some old foads running a suicide co-op in low Saturn orbit. Most days, those ex-Sierra Company boys don't even answer the phone. So it took a while to get any handshake at all in response to my requests, let alone actual data back. Besides that sort of waiting around, which was as normal as breathing, there were components to wrangle, permits to secure, passwords to filch. All of that is normal as breathing, too, come to speak of it. Kind of like the good old days. And a hell of a lot more fun than sitting around Piet's number seven, skimming poker pots off rock jocks, if somewhat less profitable. Speaking of profit, Skinhorse seemed to be made of credit. There wasn't even any point in stealing from him. If you need to buy a warship, he told me, discuss it with me first, please. Otherwise, this ought to serve. The old freak passed over a bearer credit chip with a metallic rim in a color I'd never seen before, somewhere between teal blue and molten iron, way past some strike-rich miner's platinum chip. I'm guessing you could buy Vesta with this, I said after a moment's consideration. I didn't know there could be that much open credit in any one person's hands. Skinhorse shrugged, a gut-churning motion that strongly suggested that his bones and tendons were as badly out of norm as his externals. The wealth of planets, Rabbit. Right. What the hell did he really want to restore Venus? Who cared about Venus? Terraforming efforts notwithstanding, HSAP had never been there, not in any way that really counted. Just probes and research stations and idiots trying to start flying sulfur mines. Less going on there at the best of times than a quiet day on Europa. Not like Mars, before the Wrights Wars. There had been 7th and 8th generation Martians when Fode kicked down their door. What I want is to go to Mars, Skinhorse said, which made me wonder if he could read my mind, or if I was losing my talent for poker. Credit can do that to a man. Landing's not the problem, I reiterated. We were in high Martian orbit, well above the glittering track of Phobos' remnants. Deimos was somewhere else, keeping an appointment in a different sky. Our ship was a Jovian shell, something not normally employed for rockball landings. However, since all three rockballs were planeta non-inhabited these days, very little orbit-to-ground hardware with decent atmospheric capabilities remained operational. As far as I know, no one had ever tried using a Jovian shell to slice air on an inner planet. The principle was simple. 
A lot of odd things happen to baryonic matter down a gravity well the depth of Jupiter's. Sometimes these odd things get tossed back up past the crush zone to float around on some hot methane wind or other for a while. See those pretty sparkles, boy? They've made a few fortunes. So people want to get down as far as they can go without meeting the fate God intended for all tin cans and then survive to get back up again. But it's damned low-margin business. More to the point, low cash flow. Depending where your quarry is, fuel can be more expensive than air. Down is cheap. Up costs dear, thanks to gravity's arrow. The answer? Make up less expensive. The external format of the Jovian shell was essentially a mutated, oversized step-cousin of my old fode clamshell. Atmospheric landing, one each. Wide, gentle curve at the flat end, rising to a thicker, rounded point at the other end, like an old earth seashell. Filled with a hell of a lot of aerogel, foamy nothing, basically, with a couple of micrograms of Higgs inert fermionic matter, what we lovingly call H-if, at the heart to keep leaching the mass out. Control of those self-same H-if particles was the operational bit of the Jovian shell, the magic that made mass go away. Anti-gravity, in effect. The whole business was sort of a consumer-grade black hole without the energy budget for maintenance. Plus, you could focus the effect a short distance outside the hull, making it possible to snag interesting junk floating by. Big, light, easy, sail her down the gas giant's layers one slow gradient at a time. Let the mild pressure wave from the rolled edges be your scoop. Winnow what you find, store the valuables, and useful volatiles bleed the rest back off. When you get tired or the gravity crunch gets too much even for your HF particles, fire off a little directed energy to speed up the leaching process and you don't weigh anything at all. Easy down, easy up for a staggering capital investment in the HF gear, but only the operating costs of a few battery packs worth of power. And equally quiet on the way up as on the way down. No EM signature, no vapor trail, nothing more than a leaf on the wind. If Mars had leaves. In any case, just the thing for sneaking past all those gigawatt seconds of orbiting firepower. Thing is, they were never meant to land on solid ground. However, with sufficient motivation, all things are possible. For one, staggering capital investment was right up Skinhorse's alley. My Saturn-based Sierra Company buddies fortuitously emerged from their skank dreams of simple, unretributive death long enough to cooperate in scoring us the shell. Turned out some numlobes had one on a lease to sieve transuranics out of the general colloidal dust of certain murkier portions of the belt. His lease was pulled and he was sent off to the cancer ward to contemplate his errors during what short time remained to him. The shell was scrubbed, decontaminated, and delivered in a cold trajectory toward Mars months faster than we could have hauled one up from Jupiter space, my original plan. Skinhorse, for all his philosophical sense of urgency, seemed indifferent to matters of mundane scheduling. It was enough for him to know that plans were progressing. So we were high, cold, and dark, well above the aerosynchronous monitoring net crammed into the oddly sensual curves of the Jovian shell's living space. It was as if someone had misappropriated a decently designed suite of cabins and stretched them like taffy, so that every deck was too low, every compartment too wide. The design motif had been taken to an extreme with resin cast fittings and biological shapes, like so many glistening plastic fetuses. Hell, even the coffee maker had taken me an hour to suss out. Nothing if not consistent, those Jovian orbit settlers. Getting up is no longer a problem, either, said Skinhorse finally, in his slow way. 
It took me a moment to reintegrate the conversation. Well, the problem is on the ground. We're heading right now for Utopia Planitia. Trust me, from a survivability point, it's all the same down there. Deadly as deadly goes. Varies a bit by altitude, perhaps. Higher is marginally better. So where is your blessed Gattaca? At the bottom of Valles Marineris. I digested that information for a while, making minor course corrections with an ambient temperature gas jet system mounted for just that purpose. Very stealthy, us. Remember that varies a bit by altitude comment of mine? Low is worse. Bottom of Marineris is... Well, you could have told me first. Would you have still come? Yes. Then it does not matter. This is how we became who we are. I already am somebody. No. Skinhorse stared at me a while, his eyes not quite pointing where they should. You are still someone you used to be. On Mars you will find yourself as you are. I will probably find myself dead. Perhaps that is who you are meant to be, a dead man. I didn't have the heart to tell him that I had been a dead man since the Rights War. But then, if he knew about Fode, he already knew that too. The Jovian shell wasn't stealthy on purpose, not really. No reason to be. Nobody except the pathologically bored spent a lot of time scouring the middle atmosphere of a gas giant for stray ships. But the fantastically slim cross-section, along with the peculiar electromagnetic profile of the HF drive, meant that with a little bit of careful management, we pretty much returned the sensor profile of a five-kilogram rock. Once we got in the atmosphere and started doing our falling leaf act, we'd be indistinguishable from a substantial dust cloud. Easy, slow. The way I liked it, I never got to do before. Should have thought of this years ago, I told Skinhorse. It had taken us six days in close confinement to drop below a sustainable orbit and become irrevocably committed to our descent, at least given our current mass configuration. You wanted to go back before I found you? he asked. We hadn't talked much. He spent most of his time playing Go with some little hand comp of ancient vintage, though the guts could have been anything. It didn't put out an EM signature, which is all I cared about. Every survivor of Fode wanted to go back. Nobody ever thought they would. Skinhorse must have known that. No, I lied to both of us. It's just a neat way to travel. We all journey on death's road. Some of us toward it, some away. So now you're a Zen master in addition to all your other social graces? He just smiled that hideous smile and went back to his black and white stones. How do you kill a planet? Earth, you just rape and scrape to death until she goes toxic in one giant moment of metastatic transition. Never needed that nasty old atmosphere anyway. Venus, you give cancer to. Or maybe your own flesh, going by what my new buddy Skinhorse had to say. Mars. Well, Mars, the old republic. You send 1,100 screaming combat-modded troopies down the well with the latest bio-sysops contaminants and some wunderkind conditioning like no one's ever thought of before. Or thought of since, thank Gagarin. On return, Fode's survivors tore the entire medical unit apart with bare hands and clicking teeth, shredding man, woman, and computer alike. My little combat shell had fallen out of the thin Martian sky real close to a third, fourth-generation cropping town named Walunia. A couple of hundred euros mostly worked the field tents. A handful of South Asians mostly ran the inside commerce. Everybody under N-generation contract to invest Arasia. Hence the rights wars, ultimately.
I linked up with two squaddies from Foxtrot Company and one lost support Johnny who'd come down on the wrong hemisphere. The four of us walked into town without any idea what the fuck Fode's planners and medics had done to us. First clue I had something stunk was when I met a dark-skinned kid with manga eyes just past the airlock. I mean, I knew that was what he was, but he was also enemy. Like the roach in the galley is enemy. Like the vacuum leak in your suit joint is enemy. Like the tiger in the jungle of our race memory is enemy. So I cracked him upside the head with my own helmet, even as he tried to smile and say hi. Snapped his spine, tore out his throat with my teeth, and then vomited into the wound. I had no idea I knew some of those tricks. I was still smiling when I dropped his ragged corpse, and wondering why. Seventeen minutes later, the four of us troopies had killed 278 people, 29 cats, four sheep, and too many fish for us to keep count of. Our aching, empty stomachs stung as we licked the blood from our lips and smiled at each other, still wondering. We were still wondering when the first of the dead started groaning. After that, it got ugly. How many times can you be attacked by yourself? By some twisting, dancing, grinning ghost of yourself? Shouting with your voice in a throat-torn wheeze. Looking at you with the eyes you see in every mirror. Telling your secrets to everyone under the billowing pressure cap. The dozens and dozens of your victims taking up the refrain of who you'd fucked and who you'd hurt and who you still wept over in the cold watches of the night. The support Johnny finally blew himself up along with a few dozen meters of pressure wall, but that didn't seem to matter much to anybody but us troopies. The dead didn't mind the Martian air at all. Not even the late Johnny's dead. Madness. Biology. Accelerated mitochondrial RNA transfer. Digestive bioreactors. Conditioning. Viruses. Psychotic agents. It was a stew pot beyond a hell kettle. And all over Mars, the troopies of Fode were spreading something more than death. Something that no one had bothered to warn us about. And the dead of us? They just made more dead of us. I don't even dream about how I got off Mars. I just did. Scars webbing my throat. Somehow they let me live. I've been impossible to kill ever since. Gagarin knows I've given the universe plenty of chances. Am I really me or just a weaponized copy? Maybe the real rabbit Sims is down there still, searching for a way home. I started to weep. Skin Horse didn't even look at me. Just kept playing Go. We got down below the horizon of Valle Marineris without any of the passive sensor alarms going off, which made it damn likely no one saw us landing, which in turn made it somewhat possible no one would see us coming back up again. I'd forgotten how beautiful the valley is. Some things only make sense on a planetary scale. I mean, there's rocks tumbling in the belt that would have made Michelangelo cry for the aching glory of their curves. But out there is hard vacuum, and they ain't got much context. Down here, where the winds blow and the dust flows and the sun wanders over the rim of the canyon once a day, those wild, hard-carved headlands and knees of rock mean something. It's all red and brown, at least in the upper reaches, but that's Mars. The beauty's in the shapes, each one telling the story of how that place came to be. I had worried some about the Jovian shell down here among the rocky walls, but the HF drive was sensitive enough that I could steer against the winds by sheer weight management, along with the occasional blurt of my ambient temp gas jets. A good Martian howler might do us in, but the valet was kindly today. Skinhorse wanted to be down not far from Delaney City. Delaney had been one of the verts, 
The development along a power feed that took advantage of the valley's depth to get closer to the Martian core for free before drilling deep for aerothermal and piezolithic generation. All that juice buzzing up the line had attracted little parasite platforms in the early days of the vertical projects. By the time of the last rights wars, those private environments had evolved into thriving cliff cities that prospered without much horizontal at all. I hadn't personally killed Delaney City, though maybe some of the dead me's had helped. They spread faster than rumors, at least back during the war. Now the city was an eerie vertical architecture of ruin. Flapping sheets of bladder plastic extended like the banners of a vanished army. Great skeletal hoops clinging to the cliffs showed the outline of old pressure tents. Crystal domes had shattered, leaving jagged knives embedded in the canyon wall to glint with the shadows of morning. And it all seemed to move. I watched on the Jovian shells' vid pickups. Everything sort of rippled. We slid on past before I realized I was seeing people. Dead people. Clinging to the power feed. As we moved on, they dropped away, scrambling across the cliffs and downward to follow us. I nearly vomited into my lap. There they are, said Skinhorse. I hadn't realized he was standing behind me. Bent, really, with his height in our taffy-stretched cabin. You know them? I wanted to kill him in that moment. He could have been enemy, with just a little push from my own unstable sense of reality. Especially in this place. Mars had been very, very bad for me. Returning was worse. Venus was my project, Skinhorse reminded me sharply. But I know about what happened to Mars. What the fuck were they thinking? I asked, clenching my fist and jaw. The shell bobbed with my inattention to business. Epidemiological modeling applied to biopsych warfare. They made a few bad assumptions, unfortunately. There was an epitaph for the human race. The vids continued to display a surging mass trailing us along the valley floor. How had they lived? I couldn't believe there was enough energy leaching off the power feed to sustain all these dead all these years. I didn't live off electromagnetic fields. I ate, I drank, I pissed and shat and wept and sometimes even got the fuck when I was lucky. I wasn't one of them. I couldn't be. Bad assumptions, I said, trying to break the morbid thread of my thoughts. Yeah, I'll say. Something went wrong with the self-limiters. After Venus, you people couldn't just fucking stop? They were trying to fix Venus, field-testing it here. I had to laugh at that. A bitter, long, raw howl that tore at my stomach muscles and filled my mouth with bile and made me want to claw his throat. Not quite, but almost. Didn't work, I guess. Not yet. That's why I need the Gattaca that was left behind. We were coming up on his coordinates, pursued by the angry dead. They'll swarm us by sheer numbers, I said, not to mention how fiercely they fought. I only need a few moments. I thought about letting him out, then leaving him here. But what if some of those pursuing were dead me's? What if one of them was the real me? I don't eat electricity. What if? Following the coordinates he provided, I put the Jovian shell down on a sandy spot in deep shadow. There was no installation nearby, nothing that would seem to be a place where a mad scientist like Skinhorse might have stored his precious Gattaca. He said nothing, just glanced at the instruments, and suited up for the Martian pressure and temperature. Four minutes, tops, I told him. Skinhorse nodded, then bent nearly over to crawling height to exit the lock. I watched the telltales on the control board. When lock integrity was restored, my fingers brushed the HF controls. The shell could lift right now. No one would ever be the wiser. 
I'd come home with it, packing enough of Skin Horse's credit to spend the rest of my life not playing cards with rock jocks. I wouldn't run out of funds, not even if I lived forever. The crowd in the vid was getting closer. They were running in an almost eerie unison. Were they all the same dead man? I had the sick feeling they were all the same dead me. Slapping the lock control, I exited. Don't need a helmet from Mars, not me. I can't breathe vacuum, but I can tolerate some damn surprising pressure and temperature ranges way outside human norms. Don't quite remember anymore which round of foed combat mods did this for me. Probably the last, but it certainly came in useful now. I walked out into the shadowed floor of the canyon, sliding into Martian gravity, while I dialed up the gain on my vision until the running crowd was bright as a drive flare. They were me. Hundreds, thousands of me, every shape and size and color, weathered badly by a couple of decades of Martian exposure, but I could see it in the set of every head, the posture of every body, the rhythm of every stride, the way the virus had caused the curve of each jaw to conform with my genome. I surged around myself, coming to a stop face to face with me. I left one of me in a little pocket in the middle of myself, the rest in concentric ranks so precisely spaced I could have delighted an analytic geometer. I raised my hand to my throat. The scars were ropey and worn on the lone me, raw and abraded on so many other me's. The dust, naturally. My sense of enemy was gone. But of course, I was not enemy. I was me, the ultimate survivor. There was no one else left. Hello, I said. My voice didn't carry much in the thin Martian atmosphere. But I knew what I had meant. Welcome home, I told myself from a thousand mouths. Where was enemy? There is only me, I told myself. Me. I am Mars. And I am Venus, said Skinhorse, stepping through the crowd. His voice crackled in his suit speaker, tiny but audible. He had something like a small lance in his suit glove. A probe, I realized, which could have been dropped from orbit with a gene package aboard. My sense of enemy, which had been intruding in those last moments inside the Jovian shell, reemerged not with the violent eruption of those early days during the war, but rather as a broad, slow tide. The anger of a planet, mortally wounded. Think, said Skinhorse. He raised a hand. All of me was transfixed. What have you become? Mars, I whispered, my voice an echoing ripple around the shadowed base of the canyon, as I repeated myself in a cycling canon of regret. Do you believe that I am Venus? I could see the morning star in his eyes, the quadrillion-ton cancer that his skin had become. Yes, I whispered, still echoing. Would you slay me? Oh, yes. Mars is war, and the dead me are the bloodiest veterans who ever died to fight another day. But none of my mouth stirred in that moment. Slay me now, and your mission planners will have their rock ball back. The Venus cancer will die with me and humans will once more crawl down that gravity well to establish our race. Skinhorse looked around, catching my eye over and over again, reflecting in every color and shape of my face the visor of his helmet. Or join me and bring a new earth to pass. He held up the probe, shaking it like a spear. My cancer and your death together will make our mother world greater than she ever was, in our image. In that moment I could feel all my thoughts, Murder, vengeance, enemy. The silent cold years of dust storms and starvation after there had been no one left to kill on Mars except me and more of me. The misery of my fellow undying foe troopies spread through the solar system. 
the brown-skinned boy with the manga eyes smiling to say hello as I entered Walunia. I could remember him as clearly as if he had only died moments ago. The fate of worlds was in my hands, all thousands of them. The fate of H-Sap, for all the race had ever done for me. I sent me creeping back into the Jovian shell, to the HF controls, even while I spoke to Skinhorse. It will never be so easy, I said, pulling words from nowhere. You told me I would become who I am. I want to be who I was, a comfortable killer, not the father of worlds. Has all this suffering been for nothing? The argument of tyrants. Inside the shell I focused the HF drive on the external point. All this suffering has been for too much, I told Skinhorse. Did I go with him? Believe him? Save the Earth? If indeed we would be saving it for some new generation of human evolution? Or did it end here? We must evolve, he said, echoing my thoughts once more. I've been a poker player most of my life. I never could abide the idea of a mind reader. Using HF, I threw Skinhorse up into the sky. Maybe he'd make orbit. Then his suit would fail. It was only surface rated. Maybe he'd go suborbital and burn up on the way back down. Maybe the monitors up high would fry him with lightning from heaven. I didn't give a captain's crap what happened to the world killer. If he told me the truth, then his death would release the Venus cancer and we might get one world back. If not, well, things would be no worse than they already were. Then I gathered me in, looking for a manga-isled child, and possibly a very lost troopie who might have been the original me. I would find a way to give the real me a clean and simple death, I promised myself. And once I was all dead, for real and permanent, H-Sap could have Mars back. All of me smiled, imagining Skinhorse's dying screams. One of my all-time favourite films is 25 this year. The Adventures of Buckaroo Banzai Across the Eighth Dimension is exactly as odd as it sounds. A glorious mishmash of alternative universe Saturday morning cartoon, two-fisted scientist fiction and conspiracy thriller, and it may well end up the subject of a future Worlds of Tomorrow. However, buried in its wonderful deadpan script, there is a line that it's impossible to get away from, a mind worm that lands in your head and refuses to leave. Wherever you go, there you are. As well as being a pretty great example of the wit and wisdom of Dr. Banzai himself, it's a truism that can be applied to this story. We can, and will, move out onto other planets, into other systems, and we will find new and incredible things. Just this last week, a second planet has been found orbiting in the opposite direction to the direction its star is spinning in, which is, in itself, interesting. What's fascinating, though, is that we can see planets orbiting other stars, and even more interesting, we found so many, it's not even news anymore. It's seen as mundane, as commonplace, as dull. Human nature, it seems, is to find wonder in something new, then, after a while, go back to what we've always been doing, and that's something that fascinates me about this piece. We'll still play poker out amongst the stars. We'll still get drunk, still fight wars, still make dreadful mistakes, and still construct cities and buildings of heartbreaking beauty will change, or locations will change, or the amount of bodies we inhabit may well change. But even amongst a strange new solar system where planets can be single organisms and identity is negotiable, we'll still feel both good and bad. That, for better or worse, I find very reassuring. 
Escapod is published weekly under a Creative Commons attribution non-commercial no derivatives license and it, much like the crew of many a hapless science fiction movie, is not alone. However, Escapod shipmates merely want to entertain listeners instead of taking over the ship or send a message to Tear Garden Star or do whatever that tomato-shaped thing in Dark Star was trying to do, which always worried me. Podcastle, run by Rachel Swirsky and Dan Leckie, provides the best in modern fantasy of every stripe. If you think fantasy is all loincloths and broken swords, then be sure and check it out. It's a massive, broad genre that Rachel and Anne have a deep and very clear love for, and it's fascinating to see the variety of stories on display there. Pseudopod, run by Ben Phillips and hosted by my evil twin brother, covers horror and again the breadth of story there is remarkable. Recent weeks have seen us present a documentary of sorts, a touching tale of brotherly love and a very different take on the Resurrection Men. It is often strong stuff though, so if you're of a nervous disposition, be warned. Listen anyway, but be warned before you do. Finally, if you want to catch up on old episodes, be sure to visit poddisc.com and pick up some of our archive discs. Tell Matt I said hi. Our closing quote this week comes from Herbert V. Procknow. A visitor from Mars could easily pick out the civilised nations. They have the best implements of war. We'll see you next week. Until then, have fun.